Hello, and welcome to the Clashing Identidades podcast. Wow, this is uh, Eduardo. This is already episode three, man. Episode three. How, how are we feeling? Oh, man. I feel good. I feel good. I went for a run after work. It's uh, kind of like recharge. Took a shower. Yeah, yeah. Some water. Feeling good. Feeling good. Um, listen, listen, man. I can't believe we're already uh, deep into episode three. Um, I'm enjoying this project. This is, uh, uh, like we say, episode one and episode two. This is a heartfelt project. Um, and it was important for Eduardo and I to continue to share our own individual experiences, but um, it was good for us to st take a step back. Um, it was good to, for us to take a step back and realize that uh, despite that our circumstances were what they were, and despite the fact that Eduardo and I are both from Mexico, born in Mexico, kind of immigrated to the United States, um, there are multiple, multiple different immigrant experiences here in the United States. There are multiple experiences uh, of people who are undocumented, who are, are fleeing, uh, not necessarily for economic reasons. Some people come to this country because they're fleeing persecution. Some people come to this country because they're actively being, they have no place to live. Um, and we had, uh, we had a wonderful conversation with Carmen Maria Rey. She is the United States Legal Director at the International Refugee Assistance Project. Um, and she shed some light uh, into the individual experiences of people who come here. She talked a little bit about the differences between refugees uh, and asylum seekers and why it is imperative for a lot of these people to, to traverse and to navigate difficult, dangerous uh, journeys to attempt to have a physical presence here in the United States. Um, she illuminated a lot. Of, I, I'm sure Eduardo would agree. She, she illuminated a lot of different things um, that I, even I, didn't, I wasn't aware of. Um, about how difficult life is for other people. Um, we, I feel, I, I, Eduardo, I even felt guilty kind of like, uh, I was complaining episode one about, um, not getting a driver's license and my right. inability to, to have a drink when I turned 21. Yeah. But after our conversation with Carmen, um, I was like, whoa, you know, there's people yeah. all across the globe, um, who are fighting for their right to exist let alone drive, let alone drink in a bar. Um, and she certainly, uh, she certainly opened my eyes uh, to those experiences. So uh, without further ado, uh, here's our wonderful conversation with Carmen Maria Rey. Um, we hope you enjoy it. Hello and welcome to episode three of the Clashing Identidades podcast. As always, my name is Raz Guevara. I'm your host along with my wonderful co-host Eduardo Solis. Uh, and today we have the privilege of being joined by Carmen Maria Rey. She's the United States Legal Director at the International Refugee Assistance Project. Uh, they are a nonprofit nonprofit organization that provides legal advocacy for refugees and displaced people around the world uh, in need of a safe place to call home. Uh, Please check them out. Their website is refugeerights.org. Uh, Carmen, Maria, welcome. Thank you very much for uh, giving us a few moments of your time. Um, in our previous episode, we wanted to be very, very careful with the information that we were given out. We said it for right from the very beginning. This podcast is a personal project for us to kind of talk about our experience, but we also wanted to inform and being as how Eduardo and I are not uh, law experts, we have the immigration experience down packed, but right, we're expats, correct. We were talking before the, the recording how, uh, how we need to rebrand ourselves as the undocumented people in this country, we need to rebrand ourselves. Um, but we wanted to have somebody with um, some legal expertise um, to be able to talk a little bit about some of these uh, very, very important conversations that need to be had. 
Carmen, Maria, Rey, welcome. Thank you very much for lending us a few minutes of your time. Not at all. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay, excellent. So uh, right before we started recording, uh, we found out that all three of us are uh, undocumented expats uh, who, who came to the United States uh, and came to New York specifically. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about your experience. Uh, tell me a little bit about where you're from or where your family is from originally and how you came to this wonderful uh, city called New York. Sure. Um, so my family is originally, my dad and mom are from two towns that are about 15 miles apart um, in the northwest corner of Spain, which has historically been the poorest region in the peninsula. Um, and so people from my region have been fleeing to other countries for as long as Spain has been producing migrants. Um, you know, originally, I think we fled to Latin America. They're Gallegos, we're from Galicia, get their Gallegos throughout the Americas. Um, always kind of like the, the the, the equivalent of Polish jokes in Latin countries are made about my people, always kind of the poorest people around. That's Those are the Gallegos and that's kind of my background. Um, my family has been living in the same town for thousands of years. We go back as long as the town has been there. Um, but with globalization in the last century, there have been waves of migration of my family. So waves to Argentina first and then to Cuba. And then um, eventually in the 80s, when the economic collapse in Europe happened in the early 80s, uh, my parents who were in their late 20s um, decided that the only place that was left was the United States. And at the time, actually, interestingly enough, Venezuela was also a, a country that a lot of people were thinking of going to because the economy in Venezuela um, was doing really well. Um, and so, I, you know, we could have ended up in Venezuela, we ended up in the United States, but my parents were able to get a visa to the U.S., you know, you know how things were back then. You just like knew somebody who knew somebody and then everybody helps you put money in the, the accounts that you could pretend that you had the money to travel. And so they got visas. And then of course, once they came, they couldn't leave because if they left, they wouldn't be allowed back in. So the idea was that they would come, they would work a couple of years, they would earn enough money to be able to finish the house that they had started building and pay for my, my education. And then we'd, we'd all live together back home in Spain. But they were caught in a period of migration in the United States where the borders were no longer porous. And so um, there was really this kind of hardening of borders that happens. I mean, it started a little bit earlier, but in the 80s, it really solidifies. So suddenly the US has stringent immigration laws and we follow immigration law. Um, and if you don't follow immigration law, you have punishment. And then and that punishment is like, you're not allowed to come back into the United States. And so they had left me behind in Spain. The classic immigrant thing, you think that you're gonna earn enough that you'll be able to save, really you end up living paycheck to paycheck. And they just couldn't earn enough to, to be able to really leave. And so uh, we ended up being separated. I stayed back home with my grandparents for about eight years before my parents were able to get me here uh, with the help of a family friend. And then I hated it. I, I came, they brought me on a visa. I came, I hated it, hated it. I didn't speak English, I didn't know anybody. I lived in a small town without running water and they dropped me in the middle of Queens and I hated it, the noise, the smells. Uh, and so they actually had to send me back home after the, like after three months, they were like, okay, so we, if we keep this girl here, she's gonna 
she's not gonna be able to make it. And so they sent me back home. And then the next summer they brought me back um, with this help of the same friend. And that time they told me I had the, you know, I would have, it would do the same thing. They would let me leave. And then they never let me leave. <laughs> so I've been here ever since. <laughs> um, it's funny how, it's funny how universal that immigrant experience is. It's funny how, regardless of where you come from, um, if you arrive here and you're undocumented, you have that similar experience. Everything you just described, Eduardo and I had that similar conversation last episode about how when you come here and you do not have the proper legal status, you're essentially trapped. Yes, you come here for, for a better experience and for better opportunities, but for the lack of a better word, you're, you're trapped here. You can't leave at the risk of not being able to come back. Um, and that's such a that's such a you like unique experience uh, to the, the 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 people who come here uh, as undocumented people. Um, another thing that we all share in common that we mentioned a little bit at the top of the of the podcast, uh, we were all left with our grandparents, and it's and it's a it's a family sacrifice, right? You you said you you said it yourself, and Eduardo and I both came here from Mexico, but we, we came with the same, for the same reason. We came because the economic opportunity in, in the towns where we were, grew up was non-existent. And our parents made the difficult decision of, okay, let's risk it. Let's go there because it might be better. There's no guarantees when you come to this country. Um, and part of what we are trying to do is trying to kind of shed light and bring back some of that human element into these discussions that we're having. Um, Carmen, we already have a little introduction with you. Um, we heard a little bit about your background, you know, coming from Spain, um, how you hated when you first got here to Queens, you know, coming from a small small town with no running water, you had to go to Queens and you didn't like the smells, you didn't like the noise, right? But now um, let's get into a little bit about what you do as a United States legal director as uh, at the International Refugee Assistance Project. Um, can you talk about like, you know, what kind of is the, uh, your day-to-day, -day, what kind of uh, evaluations do you do with your attorneys, your lawyers to represent, um, you know, the people that you um, that you serve? Um, and then, you know, we'll get into a little bit of the, the things going on around the country at the border and, you know, what to avoid, what to do and, and who to contact, right? So if you can start with a, you know, a rundown of what, um, what it is that you do with your lawyers on a day-to-day -day basis, that would be awesome. So I'm very lucky because I think my day-to-day -day is a little bit different from the majority of attorneys in the United States. So just to, to center the my legal experience, I'm a lawyer. Um, I'm a lawyer who has about 16 years of experience working on US immigration. So representing individuals once they arrive in the United States, um, getting them protection here, whether it's through asylum or through getting them green cards, getting them citizenship, and navigating on their behalf the bureaucracy that is U.S. immigration law. About a year ago, I was recruited by IRAP, the International Refugee Assistance Project, um, and it was kind of my dream job. And you know, I, I was so interested in, in in talking with you guys because I think one of the things that I have always felt very deeply is that um, folks like us who come here and maybe don't come from the <clears throat> most privileged of economic backgrounds, um, the world limits our options kind of from the beginning, right? We come in, maybe we, our English isn't too great. We end up in poor neighborhoods. And so maybe our ability to write in English isn't, isn't as, as, as easy um, 
uh, or as free flowing as it is for for folks that are native born we're working a little harder than others and I, mean, I have it very easy you know i've had it a lot easier than others i got status pretty quickly it was only undocumented for a couple of years um and then my parents had jobs and um i you know the priority for my family was education we were economically stable enough that that could be prioritized um but that's not the reality of a lot of the, the folks that came even with me on, in that wave of migration that came a lot of my friends and 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 that, that I grew up with who are here um, ended up working in the underground economy because that's all that was available um, and also you know I pass as, as white most people other than the lisp it's just like oh she's got a speech impediment most people don't pick up that I wasn't born here um, but even then, I mean, it just kind of the reality of growing up poor in the US means that people just kind of don't expect a lot from you. Like, oh, well, she'll graduate from high school. That's good enough. Or maybe she'll go to a community college. That's good enough. Um, but it, nobody really kind of gives you room to dream big. And that I know, at least for speaking for myself, I never, I never felt I had that. It was always kind of like, you know, eke out a living, just, just be good enough. Um, I felt, man, I remember feeling so incredibly proud of myself when I got out of Queens, when I finally was able to move to another part of the city, because I felt like for me, that was becoming. Um, and then even going to law school, right? Like I went to a, I went to a, a law school that is, that recruits from the, you know, from New York, and it's really meant to be a, a working law school. So you go to law school, the expectation is going to be a working lawyer. No one's going to come to you to like dream big and make up like big, big things. It's just, you'll get a job and you'll be able to provide for your family. And that was good enough for me. All I really wanted to do was immigration, but I had done like, way back when I was much younger, I had started working as an interpreter in the hospitals. And I was really aware of kind of what what drew people here, and then the conditions under which they lived. And like the reality that most migrants don't want to stay here, right? Like most of our parents, they didn't want to come and stay. Um, but the the migration system worldwide, the way that it all interconnects, increasingly prevents seasonal migration, which is what we're thinking about when we're thinking about creating pathways for people to be able to move according to their economic and other social needs. And um, I had, for like a moment in law school, I had taken refugee law, but it's so fancy that I looked into trying to get a job in refugee law and I was like, oh no, that's where all the fancy people that went to Harvard. And then a year ago, this big organization came to me and said, actually, we really like you. We, we like the work that you do, even though you went to this like not so fancy law school. And even though you've done like not so fancy work, we think you'd actually bring a lot to the organization. And so suddenly I find myself like this kid from Queens, <laughs> literally like, I, I get myself into these, like I'm in these meetings, like, Am I really talking to this person who's really responsible for doing this thing that affects the lives of 80 million people around the world? It's just, it's surreal. So, I mean, it's just, yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm still on a day to day basis amazed that anyone is giving me this opportunity. But, um, yeah, so I'm not anymore, I'm not a day to day lawyer, I'm not talking to clients and, I still have some court cases, but most of what I do now is 
I have this incredible team of attorneys and we talk to refugees. Mostly, most of our clients are um, in refugee camps around the world. Um, we represent a really a small, not insubstantial, but pretty small number of migrants at the U.S. border, mostly in Ciudad, they're in Ciudad Juarez, hoping to cross into the United States of the El Paso port of entry. Um, but, but a lot of our work is uh, mostly in the Middle East. Um, so we have clients in Afghanistan, so a lot of clients in Afghanistan and Pakistan, um, some clients in India, um, and then clients kind of Egypt, Libya, Lebanon, Jordan. Um, and they're They've been displaced out of their countries for one reason or another. Some, most of our clients are not economic migrants. They're people who've been displaced by war. So we represent a lot of Syrians, for example, because of the war in Syria. Um, and uh, yeah, and we're just hoping to find them. Not, I mean, I happen to be responsible for pathways to the United States, but we have people in our team who will talk to a, a person and say, okay, where do you fit? Like, where can we put you um, outside of the existing pathway that is ruled by the United Nations, um, what other ways can we use to try to get you someplace where you're going to be safe so that you're not just living in a refugee camp because that's no future. Right. Uh, it's funny because when I was doing a little bit of research about um, the International Refugee Assistance Project, I had no idea about the size. I mean, you guys are massive international organization. Uh, I think 29 law school chapters, 120 firms you guys are in 73 countries which to me is is baffling first of all uh the logistics of operating in so many different countries multinational corporation st type stuff um and and the thing that really the number that really stood out to me when i was doing a little bit of research in, in, on your website was um 194,146 lives changed is the number that stood out to me right um it's incredible it's a massive gargantuan number on itself. And yet, yeah, but it's so small when you was, compare it what the issue is, right? I was because, just about to say that a hundred percent. It yeah. seems large by itself, but in the broader scale, right? When you think about just the United States alone, 11 million people, just the United States alone. Now you e extrapolate that worldwide and it's, I hate to say that you guys are barely making a dent because you're doing tremendous work, but it really oh, speaks. To the, yeah, it barely speaks yeah. to the pro to the to those uh, to the worldwide scale of, of of this immigration project. Yeah, and so I mean, I think what's helpful to keep in mind is the work that we do is just a little bit different. If you're in the United States and you don't have status, you're still safe, right? You're not. No one's gonna come. Well. I'd love to be able to say that, but after the summer, we know we all can't. But no one's going to come to your door and put a gun to your head and take you into a secret prison and make you disappear, um, which is what our clients in other countries are perhaps facing. So we tend to not represent people once they're here because uh, there are people, there are lawyers here that can do a really good job of that. Our job, as we see it, is to get you from where you are, where you cannot survive, because it's like, do you guys, I don't know, I mean, I don't know how much you, you keep an eye on it, but think of Guatemala in the 80s. Think of the war in Guatemala and, and what was happening, right? So imagine being an indigenous person living in one of the indigenous communities in Guatemala and knowing that the, the army was, is going to come in, it's going to kill your people. We would be the people that would get you out of Guatemala and get you to the United States. And then we would hand you off to other attorneys who would fight for you to be able to stay. But our job is to get you here and navigate 
international boundaries to allow you to to come. And it's and it's a wonderful distinction that you're making because um, uh, yes, it, it, we we said it in episode one when we started this project. Everyone's experience is different, regardless of um, of how similar it may appear from the outside and how monolithic people assume. Uh, the undocumented experience is everyone's unique experience is different and the things that are impacted are the country that you're coming from the unique situation that is forcing you to 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 relocate from one country to the next it doesn't necessarily need to be the united states um but there are people uh regardless of how hard life in the united states is regardless of how difficult um undocumented status in this country may be there's still countries and peoples and uh, who are just suffering way worse who like you just said guatemala uh nicaragua there's different countries in central america all across asia all across africa where they're just being pers persecuted for religious status persecuted for for a variety of different reasons and they're uh, attempting to flee not for a better opportunity just for survival right for survival, talk a little bit about some of those um, some of those uh, countries that are, are are your focal point right now. Mm -hmm. So, a lot of the clients that we're representing right now are Iraqis and Syrians, Syrians, right? The U.S. goes, they start a war in Iraq. The war devolves into sectarian violence. People's lives are at risk. Um, I mean, it's you have bombs going off around you you want to get out because your life's at risk or you're in Syria and they're just fighting at your doorstep, bombs are going off around you, you need to get out. Um, so a lot of our clients come out of, out of the diaspora that originated out of those wars right now. Um, we also represent a lot of Afghans who worked for the US government um, efforts in the war against the Taliban and are now in Afghanistan, the Taliban is ascendant in power and searching for people who supported US efforts to kill them because they were traitors to the Taliban. And so we represent those folks in trying to get to the United States to safety. But you know, realistically, we have clients from all over the world. So if you think of any conflict, um, we have military conscription in Eritrea of young people, male and female. And so people flee in order to avoid it. And um, it's considered political persecution and we'll pick them up. If there's any way to move them, we'll pick them up. We also represent a lot of you know, LGBTQ uh, people from the Middle East. I mean, you think life is bad and then you're a transgendered person in Saudi Arabia. And uh, you know, you need you need to get out because otherwise you die. There's There are two choices. And so, um, I mean, there are people, there are organizations on the ground that can help you try to get out. And then once you get to a place where you're a little bit stable, we can try to move you into other countries. Um, you know, it's, it's the, the reality is that we, we lose a lot, right? So people, people's lives are hard and people are strong and they're resilient, but we also lose a lot. And so when you think about in the US, there are 11 people who don't have status. That means they don't have permanence here. They could lose the opportunity to continue living here at any point, but there's an estimated 68 million people around the world who just have no home. They're outside of their countries and there's no country that will welcome them. So they are also without status, but they're in countries where they can't even, like, there's just, you know, many of them are living just in, in conditions that, I mean, I've seen conditions like that in the United States, but they are the exception, not the rule. 
Oh, oh, go ahead. Okay. No, so, so um, one of the questions that we got from from the second episode, you know, we asked people, you know, what would you like to learn about? And one of the questions that we got was um, someone asking, what can someone do to, to gain, you know, if, if we're seeking asylum, what can we do or what can they do to come to this country, right? So I was wondering if you can talk about some of those policies that you um, specifically target to use, you know, to be able to bring people here. Sure. So we don't asylum. So one thing just uh, like legally, there are two different concepts that arise out of the same set of international agreements. So like back in the like back after World War Two. Right. So if we think about World War Two, one of the first instances of well-documented genocide, millions and millions of people are killed in Germany and surrounding countries because they're of a particular religion or sexual orientation or ethnic group. Um, the United States at that point had been turning boatloads of people away to go back and be incinerated in Germany. And there's a lot of guilt in the United States after the war um, because we finally kind of see what was happening in Germany. It's undeniable that Germany was exterminating people. Um, and so the US is instrumental in creating an international agreement um, that uh, creates this concept of a refugee. The idea that someone, if they if they can't live in their country because they're going to face persecution, they should be able to seek refuge somewhere else. The United States signs on to that international agreement, as most countries in the world did. Um, in fact, many countries in Latin America have signed on and have working protections. In Ecuador, for example, Ecuador has a fantastic refugee process. Um, but the United States doesn't really do much with it until 1980. And in, in the early 80s, we create, we take that set of laws that was created internationally and we make it part of US law and we call it asylum. So the only difference is this, if you're outside of the United States and you can't be in your country because you're facing persecution, either because you've already faced persecution or you're going to face persecution in your country based on a, a specific set of factors that is outlined in the law, your race, your religion, your um, political opinion, your membership in a particular social group, then potentially a, a lot of countries in the world may take you into their country and protect you. The US happens to historically have been one of the countries that accepts the most number of those people, but Canada is a close second. Australia has a great program, Germany, uh, the United Kingdom, and many Sweden, many countries have really thriving refugee programs that will take people from the country where they're waiting and, and where they, they're you know outside of the country, but they, there's a place where they're waiting and then they'll get resettled to this third country. So those are refugees. And the US does accept a, a good number of refugees. Um, we have a, a pretty decent program. It was largely dismantled under President Trump, but it'll get really strong again under President Biden. Separately, if you are, if you get to the US border or you get within the United States and you need protection on this, the same basis because you've been persecuted in the past because you're going to be persecuted in the in the future based on the same set of reasons you seek asylum. You cannot seek asylum internationally that's not a thing um, there's no historically there's no precedent for it, you can seek refugee protection internationally, but it's very. It's structured very differently. Refugee protection takes a really long time. It just does. 
that's just the reality. People wait sometimes for decades to be processed for refugee status. And sometimes they die waiting because there's just not enough slots internationally to be able to move the number of people that need resettlement. Asylum is done within the United States. So if you get here, it moves much more quickly by comparison to the refugee process. So the refugee process abroad, you go to the UN, uh, it's UNHCR, um, and you say, you explain your situation, and if they classify you as a refugee, there's a whole process that happens externally that like handles whether or not, what country you go to and whether or not that country will take you. But if you get to the US border, you can apply it if you get to enter the country lawfully or unlawfully, but if you're physically within the country and you don't, you aren't stopped by immigration, you can apply affirmatively. That means you can come to immigration within a year. You should always do it within a year because otherwise you lose the opportunity to do it. Um, you can go to the government. You can say, I'm here. I can't go back to where I come from because I'm going to be persecuted or I've been persecuted in the past. You, I, I seek protection here. And then the government can either give you that protection or say, eh, we're gonna give, we're send you before an immigration judge and you can try again before the immigration judge. Now the risk always is like going to the government for any reason, they could get give you protection or they could deny you. And if they deny you, the way that they resolve the case is they deny you and then deport you. I mean, that's a that's a perfect segue into the next topic of uh, that we wanted to discuss, um, obviously. Obviously, um, you just talked about the differences between, you know, the, the refugee and actually seeking asylum and the, the importance of the physical presence in the United States. Um, right now, there's a tough fight ahead uh, for the Biden administration to try to get the U.S. Citizenship Act of 2021 passed. So that's a difficult fight in and of itself. Uh, right now, uh, Democrats are facing scrutiny over uh, their handling of immigration amid a recent surge in border crossings. Uh, Republicans are, are arguing that it's uh, a serious crisis, but you just explained why it is imperative for a lot of these people fleeing um, to attempt to get to the United States and get to the uh, border crossings because it's oftentimes uh, easier to attain attain status here with the United States. Uh, what do you think about um, these recent you know, debates? We talked a little bit about uh, at the top of the show about marketing and how things are are painted to try to obtain a goal. Um, do you think that it's a legitimate concern that people are having about this increase, uh, you know, surge at the border crossings? There is no increased surge at the border. The border remains closed. The more the border has been closed completely closed since March of last year. Sorry. <laughs> You're fine. It's not true. That said, um, we are finally, be under the Biden administration, we are finally processing in the, it, the estimates are range from anywhere from 20,000 to 60,000 people that were forced to stay in Mexico in horrific inhumane conditions by the Trump administration when they decided that they were just going to create this new program that wasn't going to let asylum seekers, so people who had reached the US border seeking protection in the United States, it wasn't gonna let them into the interior of the United States. So historically, if you went, if you got to the border, right? And this is anybody that gets to the border. People get to the border from far outside of the United States by getting a visa to the United States, or they get on a, an airplane and they smuggle themselves into the United States or on a boat, like people, find a million different ways to get to the border of the United States, a land border, a sea border, an air border. Once they encounter an official, they then claim asylum. 
That's, that's the old story of asylum is what you see in Hollywood movies. But the reality is that increasingly, unless you have a lot of resources, you can't get a visa to the United States because the US government has made it a priority over the last 20 years to prevent even boarding a plane or boarding any conveyance unless you can pass security checks and financial checks. Right. So and certainly post 9-11 and certainly post 9-11, that transportation uh, just traveling from one country legally is difficult enough as it is. But yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Exactly. Exactly. No, no, no. But but that's I mean, just think about, you know, just think about being, I don't know, uh, a, a, a poor tribal member in in Cote d'Ivoire, who is a political dissident trying to get the hell out of Cote d'Ivoire to get protection somewhere. Well, your government now controls, right? They've entered into agreements with the US. They know when you're buying a plane ticket. They know when you're presenting a passport. They, they'll know exactly where to find you. So that's not an option anymore. Um, and if you're poor, the, no country is going to give you a visa. Like when you think about the population of the world, only about 5% of the world's population can travel internationally because they can afford to get a passport, because they can afford to pass security checks, because, because that's the world that we've created. It's not about physical borders anymore if it's about technological borders. The U.S., the minute you buy a plane ticket anywhere in the world, the U.S. knows about it. And so they can block you there from boarding an airplane. Like we never think about this, but that's the reality. So then getting to physically getting to the border, that's the only option if you're poor or if, if you're one of the 95% of, of the world that can't get themselves a passport and get them, can't get themselves on a plane, physically getting here is the only way to do it. And the U.S. has historically, I mean, they, they established, I think it was back in 2005 or 2008, the United States prioritized creating borders in the Americas because they, we want to know as the U.S. whenever someone lands on the Americas, just on, our, on this entire continent so that we can restrict their movement within the continent. But there's something about Central America. And we have been arming Mexico and creating border patrol um, incentives in Mexico. And we've done the same in Guatemala and in Honduras. So we have been giving these countries massive amounts of money to create borders and police borders to try to stem the flow of people north. But people have to move because, you know, Honduras, two hurricanes in the, in, in the space of six months, people need to eat. What do you do? You, you what, do you watch your children starve or do you risk coming north? Mexico is the first line of defense for the U.S. migration system. So Mexico apprehends and deports a lot of people who would otherwise cross Mexico to, to the border. Um, but still, the U.S. has this issue, which is some people make it through. And then what do you do with them? So instead of just doing what we always did, which was welcome them in and process them through our legal system, the Trump administration said, nah, we're not even going to let them in. Because if we let them in, then they're going to get jobs and then they're going to have babies that are going to be U.S. citizens. And then they might be able to convince an immigration judge to let them stay. Instead, we're going to keep them in Mexico. And that's already going to get rid of people who aren't truly desperate because the conditions in northern Mexico are horrific. And so if, if there's something better back home, they'll go back home. And if there's nothing better back home and they have to wait, then we're really gonna put them through the ringer. Then we're gonna create special courts staffed with special judges at the border so that these people get bussed into these courts and then bust right back into Mexico on the same day. I mean, yeah, it's it's Mexico has really been doing the the the, the dirty work for the United States for, for a while. Mexico's been doing the dirty work for the United States for <laughs> 
for a long 30 time. Years? No, forty and, years. And, and I'd like to I I like to add that if life as an undocumented person in the United States is difficult, life as an undocumented person in Mexico, if you're from Central America, is ten times as worse. Uh, you're 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 suffering the same, if not worse, level of, of you know of of attacks. You're you're the same issues that we discussed of, of Mexican and other undocumented people in the United States. Abuse in the workplace, low wages, uh, no access to healthcare. Think about all the things that we take for granted here. Yes, we have a difficult, but yes. There are still organizations who are willing to help. And yes, you go, you can board, you know, call an ER and take an ambulance and they're not going to deny you care, because even if you're dying. In Mexico, it's completely different. Central Americans who are traversing Mexico are, are subjected to a, a level of abuse and a level of discrimination that we can't even fathom all to attempt to try to get here. And that's how dire the situations are. I mean, it's, it's, it's difficult. Yeah. And increasingly, people, if you, if they feel that they can stay in Mexico, Mexico is offering refugee protections, right? So people can try to stay in Mexico and make a life in Mexico. And, you know, certain parts of Mexico are safer than others. Um, yeah, so you are increasingly seeing Mexico as a country that, that itself is drawing an immigrant population. But for the reasons that you mentioned, Bress, for a lot of people, Mexico is just not an option. Um, it's just, it's not. And there are increasingly civil society organizations in Mexico that are working to improve conditions in Mexico, but it's still not there. It's just not there. And because it's it, because it's the thing that like none of us talk about, right? Like in the US, we're all one contiguous mass of Latinos or Hispanics. And between us, we stop discriminating because we're too busy trying to protect ourselves against the uh, like against the othering that's happening to us. But in our own countries, we're each kings of our own countries and we are very happy to discriminate against others right so i mean that's the thing i think lola that's the thing that we um lola is agreeing was... with your point lola is is being emphatic that you are absolutely correct in your last assertion there but yes no uh, listen the the number the five percent that that number kind of jumped out at me when you were mentioning the percentage of people in the in, in this country, in this in the world that can legally travel i mean that's that's baffling right that five percent is such a low number um and it also talk, talks to the trope about oh come here the the right way come here the legal way uh you know what i'm saying that's a a a, a common a common uh i, I don't want to say republican a common uh talking point for people who are against uh, uh, you know, immigration, legalizing pathway to undocumented people is, oh, uh, you know, 50 years ago, my family came here the right way, uh, you know, and it's so difficult. And it's such a such a, a fake argument uh, for all the reasons you just mentioned. It's such a it's such a hard uh, thing to do when you're you're poor, uh, you don't have access to, to the to correct documentation or anywhere part of the world. So the other question that we got from the audience from, you know, episode two was how is the 2021 Citizenship Act going to impact the current immigrants here, right? Those who are already on the pathway to citizenship and those who are still waiting, you know, with for whatever reason, how is that going to impact um, their waiting times? How is it going to impact the possibility of them, you know, becoming legal, legal citizens and, you know, possibly getting pardoned for whatever it is that, you know, that is preventing them from becoming a citizen? That's a, that's a big question. Um, so first, 
full disclosure, I don't think there's a lot of hope of the act passing. So that's kind of one thing that I want to get right out in front is, is I think a lot of us don't think that there's enough appetite in Congress and the Senate for the act to pass in its current form. If it were to pass, so, so it, it's, it's a big dream piece of legislation. It's like, what would we want if we could get everything we wanted, this is what we would want. Um, but it most likely will pass in, in piecemeal and as part of other, um, of, of other laws. Now, what's really impressive about it is that it allows for a citizenship pathway for people who've previously violated immigration law. So that I think is kind of the, the big thing that makes it different um, is it fixes, so what happens, it, you know, the US prior to 1997, um, it, actually 1996, it, it had a, a really generous immigration law. And, and still, to be honest with you, out of the big industrialized nations, the US still has one of the most flexible immigration laws. Uh, I mean, by comparison, if you think about England, it's the US is really humanitarian. Um, but under President Clinton, we passed this set of laws called IRERA. And what IRERA does is it creates all these penalties, all these like, like weird little penalties so that if you do a bad thing, something that violates immigration law, even in the most minor ways, the consequences are massively outsized and potentially, you know, prevent you from being able to legalize forever. And there were two periods after IRERA where we kind of carved out some ways for people to legalize despite that bad set of laws. Um, and we call them amnesties, which is now a dirty word, but there was one in, in the late 90s and there was one in the early 2000s that basically said, listen, pay a fine and we'll let you get status, right? We just, it's more important for us that people are able to access the full breadth of protections in the United States than it is to continue to punish you forever for something that you didn't really even understand there were consequences for. Um, but the last time that we had one of those was back in April, April 30th, I think, of 2001 was the last one. Um, and so the, what people call it, the 245I, those were the amnesties. And one of the things that this bill does is it brings back something very similar to that, where if you show that you're a good person and that you're contributing to the United States, we'll allow you to basically get past behavior forgiven and get your immigration status. And it really, I mean, it would be, right now, studies are showing that over a million un formerly undocumented people have returned to their countries of origin in the last couple of years. So the estimates now are about 10 million undocumented in the US, um, but it would allow a, a pathway to citizenship for a really high number of them. The one population that really hasn't been addressed very well is people who are affected by the intersection of criminal and immigration law. So that population is still largely abandoned and is like kind of the big frontier. Right. Uh, I, I remember I remember 245I vividly. I mean, I remember the the rush to, to file and to pay the fines for people, even who, who at the time um, did not have uh, the options to kind of legalize yet. They were still like, oh, I still got to file this because in the future I might be able to benefit from it. Um, and that kind of le led itself to, lent itself to kind of uh, 
you know, unscrupulous uh, organizations kind of just taking money from from undocumented people like, oh, I'll file this for you. Give me two thousand, three thousand um, uh, dollars. And that's one thing we always push and we always mention um, and we'll always will mention is about being careful um, with uh, the people that you 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 entrust to kind of kind of kind of help you navigate the, the bureaucracy and making sure that they're accredited organizations, making sure that, um, you know, you do a little bit of research. Uh, we live in, in, in a wonderful time where you can Google and read reviews on just about anything. Let's just spend 10, 15 minutes to, to assure that the lawyer that you're working with or the organization that you're working with is reputable. So that I wanted to point out. Uh, um, number two. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get two plugs on that. The first yep. is if you live in the city of New York, you can literally call 311. And 311 will give you uh, a hotline that you can call, which is paid for. It's free and it's paid for by the state. And it has every single language you can think of. And you can call and they will give you a recommendation to a trusted attorney. The second is if you are want to engage in self-help, the American Immigration Lawyers Association has a uh, has a website where you can look for an accredited reputable immigration attorney in your region um so you don't have to go at this alone and please 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 stop taking recommendations from like rosa the cousin of the <laughs> sister of the blah 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 because for the life of me everybody's immigration yes. situation is different and it's yes. complicated and it's fact specific and we all lie Thank to you. each other about what happened in our cases because thank we don't you. want to tell the truth because it makes thank us look bad. Thank you. Thank you. We say that every episode and we will continue to say it every episode. Every episode. There's only two episodes. Right. We will continue to say it every episode because it's super important for us to continue to repeat. What's good for the goose is not always good for the gander. Your situation is different. Eduardo and I are both Mexican. Eduardo both, both and I both came here as children. Our situations cannot be more different and what's good for him is not good for me. Now think about that across the multiple countries that are represented in our beautiful brothers and sisters who are unfortunately are undocumented in this country. Do not take advice from Rosa, like Carmen just said. Do not take advice from podcasts that you're listening to. Do your own research. I did not know about 311 and that's a good one. Um, I will definitely spread that out. Uh, I remember I was, I was having lunch with my mother last past weekend and she was telling me about this lawyer in the Bronx this lawyer in the Bronx. And I was like, mom, let me stop you right there. Nope. Um, let's not talk about this lawyer in the Bronx. And I said, and if you hear any of your friends talking about this lawyer, magical lawyer in the Bronx, who is uh, promising to fix all your problems, then that's, that's already a problem in and of itself. Um, and she was telling me that the, this lawyer in the Bronx, who I will not rename, um, was promising, uh, particularly Mexican people, was promising them you know, I will solve your issues. You will have your work permit and your social security number uh, within six months if you get uh, X amount like of dollars. Five years to get my permit. You know what I'm saying? And and what what this apparently what he's doing is he's claiming refugee uh, or yeah. claiming asylum, and it's like that doesn't work. You're gonna lose it. You're not going to qualify. And anyway, let me. I'm, I hate to go into this this long rant about this, but yes, please stop listening to Rosa. Stop listening to La Tia Maria. Please stop listening to people who who are just, you know, trying to push people who might have worked for them in the past. But I um, also like think about what the incentives are of people right. to, to tell you things, right? It's right. anyone right. can sell you a pretty story, right. but there is not the law is not complicated enough that 
it's it's in the province of one person. It's just right. not. We have a, right. like a, over 1,800 immigration lawyers in New York City alone. Right. No one of us is so much smarter than the rest that like the right. guy in the Bronx knows something that I don't know. So right. like, am I making money off of you? Well, then maybe I have less of a motivation to like sell you right. something if I'm right. not making money off of you. The, there's a hotline actually that's also paid for by the state and people can call from around the country. It's called the New Americans Hotline. I don't have the phone number off the top of my head, but it's available online. And you can call there. Um, I think they run for about, I think, 10 hours a day. Um, right. Also, they have interpreters and they will give you referrals. They'll try to find you an attorney pretty much anywhere in the country that you are. Um, and that's, uh, that's, a, that's and we'll, a and we'll definitely look, look these up and post these in the description. Um, uh, two final, final thoughts. Um, and then we'll let you go because I know you're incredibly busy and you've already been incredibly generous with your time. Um, it's the best conversation one, I've had all day. So, <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, number one, um, you, you, you shed some important information about the uniqueness of the individual experiences and how we're not monolithic, we're not all the same, right? Um, and, and yes, uh, we may be complaining about, um, you know, our individual statuses, but there's always somebody who is fleeing from something way worse. And we may have come here for, for a better opportunity, but there's somebody who's trying to survive and trying not to die and trying to find, you know, a permanent a permanent roof over their heads. And, and it's always good to consider these things um, whenever we are quick to complain about our own individual situations. It's good to consider other people and other experiences. Um, because if we all do that, we can kind of have, you know, take a step back and say, okay, yes, we all share this one thing. And yes, we are all trying to be, you know, stable and, and have a safe home here in the United States. But let's consider other people's situations um, and not just our own. Um, and number two, I, I definitely want to thank you um, thank you for all the work that you do. Um, I thank, you know, how many people have benefited from your, your, uh, your interest in advocacy, your interest in, you know, going to law school, your interest in kind of pursuing this life, um, which uh, may not be glamorous. Or maybe it is. I'm not sure. It's, it's so um, glamorous. How is it so glamorous? <laughs> uh, you're, you are, you are, um, you're in the thick of it. Uh, you're in the thick of it and, and you're fighting for people, um, not just here in the United States, like you mentioned. Um, you're fighting for people's right to exist. You're fighting for people's right to live. Um, and, and we thank you for that. We appreciate we, all your hard work. Yep. We all are doing it, yep. honestly, by existing in a country like the United right. States that that works so hard to, to other um, people who aren't from here but dare to question it. Um, and its practices, like the mere fact of existing in this country is, uh, is resistance. So thank Pre you guys. Precisely, precisely, precisely. And we will continue to live. We will continue to smile. We will continue to laugh because like you just said, our mere existence is an act of resistance. So thank you for that. And if you want uh, any more information on the International Refugee Assistance Pro uh, Project, once again, their website is refugeerights.org. We will also add the link to the bio. Uh, Carmen Maria Rey. Thank you very, very much. Um, uh, Eduardo, any last closing thoughts? I mean, pretty much just echoing everything you said, you know, um, Carmen actually worked um, for the person who introduced us, um, who she was actually, you know, one of my attorneys back in like 2014, 2015, you know, and, um, you know, just being able to reconnect with someone like that far back, 
it's pretty awesome right she had a conversation with my mom like the other day for like 20 minutes they were just like <laughs> you know it ended up being she didn't represent my mom or me but you know just her thinking that she had done that and like that genuine want to, con to connect with someone from her past you know definitely worked on that case <laughs> 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 i was probably the grunt in the back doing the legal research <laughs> I, I remember, I remember your case, but, um, you know, yeah. it's funny, like community matters. And that's one of the things that I love the most. Yeah. Um, so it was, it's an honor to get to talk to you and to see, you know, that the late nights work are, are worth something. That's kind of you know, what we were hoping to do with this too. You know, we discussed, I think in the first episode, um, the Mexican community here is not as united as other places or as right. other communities, right? And you know, it's 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 tough, right? You're you're coming to a new country, you don't really know anyone unless you know someone hooks you up. But even then, right, people expect something in return, right? So it's tough for, for many different reasons. But you know, we hope to um, shed a little bit of light like Raz. Right. Well, I call him G. I don't like calling him Raz. Like <laughs> G said at the beginning of the episode, you know, we wanna um like allow people to not feel ashamed and seek out those right. resources and just do right. um be a little bit more proactive um in terms of getting rid of that shame yeah for sure uh get rid of those silos man uh build communities reach out to your fellow brother and sister my uh, nicaraguan brothers and sisters my guatemalan brothers and sisters my you know uh ivory coast brothers and sisters like everybody we're all we all have this shared experience and if uh, the faster and quicker we we realize that we can help each other out um Again, uh, Carmen Maria, we thank you very much. Uh, have a wonderful rest of your evening. Uh, please give uh, tell Lola uh, that we we w are going to have her as a guest in the next episode, um, so she that she doesn't feel as uh, left out. <laughs> we can do a we can do a, a podcast on the uh, the migrant experience of dogs. I uh, I got her. Uh, you said she's from the Bahamas. Listen, yeah. I love the Bahamas. I, I, I'm the executive producer of a podcast with these two baseball players from the Bahamas really? and every year and every year, these two baseball players, uh, shout to Lucius Fox and Todd Isaacs, they create, uh, they have a, a home run derby in the Bahamas where they hit baseballs into the water and they have awesome. all the local Bahamian kids kind of going out there and getting the baseballs back. It's a wonderful <sighs> experience. I love the Bahamas. And if Lola wants to go back, we will definitely take her back for vacation to the Bahamas. She's from Eleusera. Uh, and yep, absolutely. We, we will <laughs> happily go back. <laughs> Thank you very much. Carmen Maria, have a, wonder, have a wonderful night. Ciao, Eduardo. Hasta luego. Once again, uh, thank you very much, Carmen Maria Rey. Uh, the work that she does with the International Refugee Assistance Project is, is very important. Please uh, look up their website at refugeerights.org. Uh, consider uh, donating to it. Um, they're doing tremendous work all across the globe. Uh, but before Carmen um, joined them, she actually worked for the Sanctuary for Families, and they, they touched upon it a little bit at the, at the end of the conversation there. Um, and she worked on Eduardo's case. She worked on Eduardo's immigration case, and, um, uh, and, it's, and it, was, it was tangible. Her hard work is now represented uh, in Eduardo's ability to to legally legally work in, in this country. Eduardo, how did it feel to have that conversation with her? Uh, I don't know, man. I think for me, it was pretty cool to talk to someone, you know, from, from my past. I think the last time I had some interaction with her was like 2014, 2015. And then from there, you know, people go their separate ways, right? But after we started this podcast, um, I, there, there's a few people that I kept, who I kept in touch with. Um, in terms of like, you know, lawyers, attorneys, all that. 
Um, and there's one person who connected me to Carmen. Um, she was the uh, director of Sanctuary for Families at the time that I was, you know, working with them. Um, so Carmen was actually working under her, I believe. And she was doing like paperwork and, you know, it was just, I don't know. I think every time I see someone or, or connect back with someone who worked on my case, I feel like this uh, sense of appreciation, you know, because of all the work that they did, you know, they didn't really know me personally, but it's, I guess it's their passion to do what they do, right? And um, like you said, it's not a glamorous lifestyle, right? They work long hours, you know, a lot of times, you know, under, overworked, underpaid, um, and, you know, it, it's tough, um, but for them to do that out of, you know, the passion that they have and um, the, the want and the need that they have to, you know, help people have a better life, it's, it's always good to connect with those um, individuals. I was really happy to, you know, chat with, um, with Carmen for like 30 minutes before uh, we had this podcast. I spoke to her last week. I spoke to her like again earlier today, right? So it's pretty cool to keep those connections alive and um, definitely look forward to um, seeing what she does in the future and, you know, right. keeping track of, of uh, International Refugee Assistance Project, Assistance Project. Right. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, we'll see what happens. Maybe I'll, uh, we can start volunteering with them. You know, they have those grassroots programs. They have volunteer programs. Um, you can donate whatever amount you want. So, you know, we'll see what happens. Definitely. Absolutely. Uh, check them out. They're doing fantastic work as well as uh, Sanctuary for Families. Uh, uh, she gave a lot of resources and we'll do our best to kind of to tabulate them and, and compile them into um, links for, for everybody in the description. But uh, once again, uh, this, you know, it was a wonderful conversation eye-opening is it falls short of uh, how actually I feel um, after we spoke to her. She is incredibly talented, incredibly intelligent. And, and think of all the people who have benefited from her from her work. Um, and and it, it was inspired by her own experience, right? She shared with us that she was from Spain and, and she was undocumented for a few years. And she admitted like her, 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 her privilege a little bit, uh, but that still didn't take away from any of the, of the, the work experience correct right that experience and that's why we were talking about in episode two it's about like take a step back understand that people who might not be mexican who might not be from spain who who, who colombian dominican are our cuban brothers and sisters our puerto rican brothers and sisters are all different but yet we all have the unifying um uh i the unifying uh notion of of immig immigrating to this country and it's um and it, it was a wonderful conversation and we hope you enjoyed it um thank you very much uh for all of the people who have been reaching out to us and giving us comments uh, uh we appreciate every last one of them we appreciate every one of those comments uh thank you very much from eduardo uh and myself uh this is the clashing identidades podcast uh please check us out next time follow us on our twitter account our our instagram account our youtube account um in episode four coming soon Thank you.